This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the Science of Beauty, a podcast from Allure. I'm Jenny Bailly, Executive Beauty Director. And I'm Diana Mazzone, Senior Beauty Editor. On this podcast, we're diving deep into the science behind beauty and the products we're always talking about and using here at Allure. This season, we have been focusing on hair, and this is actually our last episode of the year. Can you believe it, Diana? I cannot believe it. The time has just flown. Feeling, I'm feeling a little emotional. I am too, but I have good news. We are ending this year on a really fun topic. That is true. We are. Today, we're going to be talking about hair dye, which is such an important part of many of our beauty lives, certainly a pivotal piece of transformations, big and small. I personally, as you, well, actually, I don't know if you know back this far, Diana, I've been dyeing my own hair for over a quarter century, which sounds a little long when you use the word century, but it started with my attempt to look like Angela Chase, because if I had that hair, I would find my my Jordan Catalano. So I bought a box. She had used, I believe, a Manic Panic color that I'm not sure actually existed that was called Crimson Glow. It's not red. It's crimson glow. I decided probably semi-permanent was going to be a better choice for me. So I got some Clairol Natural Instincts. Um, It didn't, I didn't wind up looking like a 15-year-old Claire Danes. It was kind of an unfortunate orange. But it still, it set me off on this this hair color journey. My hair was pretty dark for a while in my 20s. And now in my 40s, I get balayage every three months or so with Abby Halidi. She's a brilliant colorist who blends blonde into all my now white hair. So the look is kind of fresh, but it's not like the white is totally covered. So I don't have to be touching up gray roots every two weeks. So it's pretty manageable. Your hair always looks beautiful, Jenny. You would never know. It's it's so you. It's so, so you. And no, I mean, you know way more about this than I do. I must admit that I have not dyed my hair since high school. I really fried it back then. So I've been a little wary of even going back to back to that place. So I keep it au naturel. But I heard that you have parlayed all of your personal hair dye knowledge into a little quiz for me and for our listeners. Is that right? That is correct. So everybody can guess along. So we've established hair dye first came into play for me, Jenny Bailly, in 1995. But Diana and everyone listening, can you tell me when you think hair dye first came into play, like period in the universe? Okay, this is going to be multiple choice. So you have four choices. Okay. Okay. Did hair dye first come into existence in A, the Paleolithic era? B, Enlightenment era Europe, C, Ancient Egypt, D, David Bowie's bathroom in 1972. 
Ooh, that's a that's a tough choice. I want to say ancient Egypt just because I know there was a lot of beauty innovation happening at that time. I'm thinking Cleopatra and her cat eye. I could see them, I don't know, crushing some berries and making early hair dye. That is a good guess. It is incorrect, however. Oh, man. I'm sorry. Thank you for playing. The answer is A, the Paleolithic era. Wow. Okay. That's, I don't even know the years that's associated with. A long time ago. I did look it up. So the Paleolithic period started about 2.58 million years ago. So a long time. Um, And recent archaeological evidence shows that humans in this period may have used the iron oxide contained in dirt to color various objects red, including their homes, their textiles, and also their hair. Ah, wow. That's such a fun fact. Yes. In an attempt to woo the Jordan Catalanos of the Paleolithic period, I think they thought redder hair was going to do the trick so they rubbed dirt in it there you go when in doubt rub a little dirt in it okay so we have established that red hair had an allure all the way back in the paleolithic period a few million years ago and now i'm going to move to slightly more modern times but but not that much more modern with my next question diana Can you tell me which of the following ingredients the ancient Greeks and Romans may have used for hair dye? Was it A, henna, B, lead, C, pickled leeches, or D, all of the above? Ooh, those are all, well, not all, but too interesting to not all be answers. I'm going to go with all of the above when you get it right you're right (laughs) so ancient romans among others did use all of these options to color their hair and some of them yeah were not so healthy maybe not good for you but apparently they felt it was worth it for hair transformation yeah lead in particular strikes me as perhaps not what you want to use to dye your hair with and leeches like that's a bold move yep So now a question on modern hair dye. And I'm going to tell you, Diana, up front. Okay, I'm going to give you this fact. The first commercialized synthetic hair dye was created in 1856 from chemicals derived from coal tar. So now the question, Diana, is can you tell me what color that first synthetic dye was? Was it A, blonde, B, purple, C, black, or D, pumpkin spice? Um, love pumpkin spice as an option. Uh, black seems too obvious. It was derived from coal tar, so black seems like the obvious answer. I'm I'm gonna go purple. Okay, that is wrong, but almost right because <laughs> technically none of the answers I gave you were actually correct. Oh, Jenny, I know. Come Sorry. on. But so purple was the closest match because the answer is mauve. Oh, that's very specific. Just like a purple. Yeah. yeah, like a pinky purple. So, okay, so in 1856, this guy, William Henry Perkin, he was 18, and he was, as you do when you're 18, trying to synthetically produce quinine, 
which is a chemical that helps treat malaria. He was an ambitious Where is teenager. this story going? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So keep, so keep listening. So, okay. So he's trying to synthetically produce quinine to help treat malaria. Really nice thing to do. He was not successful. His experiment failed. But when he was washing his beakers out with alcohol, he noticed there was this bright, rich kind of fuchsia purple dye left behind. Hmm. And he called it movine. Oh, okay. Movine. So movine was totally synthetic. And it was also just much brighter and longer lasting than a lot of the natural dyes that we have been talking about. But this kid, Perkin, himself, he didn't actually use movine for hair dye. He just discovered movine. And then a chemistry professor named August Wilhelm von Hoffmann who was maybe of German origin, I don't maybe. know. Maybe, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> Austrian, I don't know. Took He took movine and he derived a molecule called paraphenyledemiamine. It's it's a mouthful. So we know it in, in modern days as PPD. So it's a color-changing molecule. Okay. Okay, and I'm, I'm getting there. The payoff is All coming. All right, you're losing there. me. Okay, so we got the PPD. Then in 1907, a young French chemist named Eugene Schuller or Eugène, maybe, Eugène. Eugène picks up this PPD that this other guy, August von Flufferfuff, had come up with. And so he realizes, <laughs> wait, this could be a great hair dye. And he calls it oriole, as in, you know, an oriole, like a circle of light surrounding something, kind of a halo, which is a nice name for hair dye. And then later, he, so at this point now, he has a hair dye company, and he's like, maybe I should rename my hair dye company what, Diana, is the hair dye company? I think I know this one. I think it's L'Oreal. Yes. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So we've gone through a lot of a lot of transformation to get to where we are today with hair dye technology. We have. I feel like it's a sign of how important this stuff is, right? Like from lead to leeches to coal tar, like the human race just kept at it. We were like, we need to color our <laughs> hair and I guess I mean our hair as we've been talking about all season it's such a crucial part of our identities um, and people want control over what it looks like in various ways and that includes what color it is wow that is so true all right I feel ready to move into the 2021 version of this conversation Right, which presumably will not feature leeches or lead. Yeah, hopefully not. Today we've got someone who can answer all of our questions about the latest in hair dye technology, cosmetic chemist Ann Wagner. My name's Ann Wagner. I uh, am currently a technology and market development manager for consumer products uh, on the microbial solutions team in Charles River Laboratories. So you are a doctor, Dr. Wagner, of chemistry? Yes. We hear over on the Science of Beauty podcast that your hair is made up of keratin, or at least in part of keratin, which is a protein. What gives hair its color, its natural color? Hair is primarily made up of protein called keratin, so you're right on that. And the hair itself is made up of three main parts. So the outermost layer of your hair is called the cuticle. And one of the best ways that I like to describe the hair cuticle is uh, that a hair cuticle is like shingles on a roof. You know, everything's layered over each other and the shingles on your roof protects your house and your home from the elements. So kind of the same thing with your hair. You have the hair cuticle cells that layer over each other. If you actually look up a picture of a hair 
under a microscope, you'll see these layers and that's the cuticle cells layered on top of each other. So where in there would the hair color be? The hair color is past the cuticle in the cortex. And the cortex, the cortical cells, there are melanocytes. Melanocytes is just the type of cell that has the pigment called melanin. And that's where the color comes in. And what's really interesting about hair is that a very, very small percentage, or even the darkest hair, is melanin. It's mostly protein. It's mostly keratin with a splattering of these color molecules that create that reflection of a black or a dark brown or a red or blonde. So melanocytes are in the cortex of the hair, but we know from previous episodes that your hair is actually dead once it sprouts out of your head. So are the melanocytes dead? Melanocytes alive in the hair follicle. And then it lives its life. And once it comes out of the hair follicle, your hair is dead. But the dispersed color doesn't have to be alive to be colorful. Oh, so it's like the melanocytes are almost like a squid or something. And they're alive, just stay with me, like underneath your scalp in the follicle. And they shoot their ink into the cortex of the hair. And then the hair grows out. And it's whatever color that ink was. Uh, you know, I, I, I like where your mind's at, but it's, it's not quite. So, so melanocytes are growing in the hair follicle and the melanin gets created in the melanocytes, in the cortex, when it's being created in the hair follicle. And then it just keeps growing. Think about it as like you have color in your hair and it doesn't go away. Just because it's not actively growing doesn't mean it's gone. It's just there. So the melanocyte, it creates the melanin. And that's where, as your hair grows, it just stays there, deposited in the cortex. So when you dye your hair, are you changing the melanocytes or is it more of a superficial sort of change that you're making? When you do hair coloring, that's your main focus. There's not any particular cells. It's just the pigment there. So the melanin is a pigment and it can create a variety of shades. One of the things that's interesting about melanin is that it's actually not just one type of molecule. Actually, it's a polymer. And there's pheomelanin and eumelanin. And your hair color is a combination of both of them. So it's part pheomelanin, part eumelanin. And eumelanin has that black to brown shade tonality. And pheomelanin has a red to orange tonality. So a mixture of those two will create anywhere between black to blonde hair. Now, people that have really, really light hair, light blonde, have the least amount of eumelanin and pheomelanin. And what's interesting is that people with red hair have the highest concentration of pheomelanin. So when your hair goes white, do the melanocytes, does that mean they've just like given up and they're not doing anything anymore? They're not creating melanin anymore. And so they can never be revived. Well, not yet. <laughs> but as of right now with our current technologies, no, they can't be revived. Got it. So what is happening to our hair's pigment when we apply color? Okay. So how I like to describe hair and how you color your hair is through thinking about markers and construction paper. So if you have like a white or cream colored construction paper and you use a blue marker on it, it'll look pretty darn blue. So if you use like a dark brown or a black construction paper and you put blue on there, it's not going to pop like it did on the lighter hair color. But if you use say yellow construction paper and you put blue marker on it, it kind of looks green. 
So it's that combination of background color that impacts when you color your hair. How does the color change actually happen? So the most well-known type of hair color, when people think of hair color, they think of permanent oxidative hair color. That's what the chemists call it, but they normally call it permanent hair color. So it's composed of two different parts. You have a colorant that's either in a tube or a bottle, and you have a developer bottle. Those two components need to be kept separate before you're ready to color your hair. You can't put them together because once you put them together, there's a reaction that starts that can't stop. And that's not good because you want that reaction to happen on your hair. So the colorant has the dyes. The colorant is in the form of a cream or, or a liquid, and there's an alkalination in that. What that really means is something that people are more familiar with as ammonia or monolethanolamine, ethanolamine, it's an interchangeable word. And that's that, that stinky smell that hair color has. The unfortunate smell does beg the question, do you need to use an alkaline agent? And if the answer is yes, does it need to be ammonia? So remember that cuticle with the shingles on the roof? When you have an intact cuticle, you know, nothing should be really going in there. So when you want to permanently color your hair, you need to get the dyes past the cuticle. So what does that is that alkaline agent, the ammonia, the ethanolamine, it opens up the hair cuticle, almost like lifting the shingles in the roof. So there's an opening. So the dye can slip in. The second part, the developer, developer goes in and one of the ingredients in there is hydrogen peroxide. Hydrogen peroxide basically degrades melanin. And when I say by that, that sounds harsh. It basically converts it from a colorful pigment to a colorless pigment. What you have going on here is that you've mixed your colorant and your developer together. Uh, you open up the hair cuticle with the alkaline agent. Your dyes start slipping in. And at the same time, that hydrogen peroxide in the developer is simultaneously wiping away the color background and catalyzing, making the reaction go faster for these little dyes to make bigger dyes that get stuck in your hair. So the little dyes <laughs> go past the cuticle and then they're getting bigger and getting stuck in your hair. And then when you rinse it all out, your pH changes and the cuticle shuts down. And what ends up happening is that you lighten your natural hair color and at the same time, put in new color into your hair. But what I just described to you is very different for the other categories. And when you look at the hair color shelf, you know, in a supermarket or a CVS, you'll see a wide range of products. Uh, you'll see stuff that range from calling themselves temporary hair color to permanent hair color. And in between, you've got semi-permanence and the demi-permanence. Demi-permanent. Okay, walk us through how that works. First of all, I love demi-permanence. I think they're beautiful. So demi-permanent uses a, uh, an alkaline agent, again, that just opens up the hair cuticle. And what makes these different is that generally the hydrogen peroxide amount is much lower. So it tends to be less lightening of the hair, more just enough hydrogen peroxide to make the dyes deposit in your hair. So when it comes to demi-permanent, you're generally not lightening, you're generally just depositing going darker. But with demi-permanent, it tends to be considered a little less harsh in that way because you've got a lower amount of hydrogen peroxide, you're decolorizing less melanin. Does that mean it's less harmful for your hair? Let's just be honest, anything you do to open the cuticle, change your hair is going to add some damage. But I think it's important to couch that in, like literally anything damages your hair. 
The sun damages your hair, water damages your hair, brushing your hair damages your hair, flat ironing, permanence, keratin treatments, everything damages your hair. But you know what's beautiful is that your hair grows back. Okay, so you explained demi-permanent color. Now, how is demi-permanent different from semi-permanent color? How I like to describe semi-permanent is it's like painting a house, but imagine the paint not sticking as well. Okay, like it'll eventually kind of flake off. So what's interesting about semi-permanent is it's for the people that want less commitment. But if you look out on the market, you'll see a lot of variety of longevity of semi-permanent. You can see some where you, you buy it at the supermarket versus something you can get in the salon. And you might see a range of being like, okay, this color lasts six washes. This color lasts 40 washes. It's not generally getting past the cuticle. It's coating the cuticle. With something like that, you know, semi-permanents are fun where you can do those crazy colors. It was super fun seeing that, you know, over the past couple of years with like the rainbow hair, the unicorn hair, and people of various age groups just going, oh, I'm going hot pink. So semi-permanents are totally peroxide free. They're not lightening your existing hair color at all. That's correct. If it's got a lightener in there, a hydrogen peroxide, that's going to put you either in the demi-permanent or permanent category. Okay, got it. So if I'm going to a salon, am I getting the same goop as I would if I bought an at-home dye? They're all composed generally of the same basic core ingredients. What differs between a salon and at-home is that in the salon, the hair colorist is the artist. They can say, totally modify that formula and make it thinner. They also can change the developer level. And then also it's just experience. You know, they can create any sort of color. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome back to the science of beauty. So we have talked a lot about dyes, but when people bleach their hair, like myself, is that the same process, bleaching and dyeing? Bleaches don't have dyes in them. Bleaches are using extra catalysts. In addition to just the ammonium and the hydrogen peroxide, they're using things called persulfates, things like that, that basically make the reaction go even faster, a little stronger. So it decolorizes the melanin even more. So what's the difference between bleach and peroxide? I think I think of them as being the same. Peroxide is in hair coloring to lighten your hair color. And peroxide is also in bleaches. They tend to be a higher percentage of peroxide in bleaches in order to, again, lighten your hair even more. It's that third powder part, which are, are things that are generally persulfates, which are like extra catalysts. Bleach contains peroxide plus per catalyst. Persulfates and hydrogen peroxide and no dyes. So like my hair, this isn't my natural blonde, Dr. Wagner. My hair is highlighted. It's just the blonde on top of like the mix of brown and, and white. So is my color is just painting on pure bleach? It depends on how, how much lighter you want it to be. If you want it to go really, really, really light, then yeah, you're going to be bleaching it. 
you might use a, a lightning cream, which basically doesn't have persulfates in it. And it's just an alkaline agent and hydrogen peroxide. And then when they send you over at the end to the sink and they say, now we're doing a toner. And sometimes if they have an assistant, they'll be like B714 or whatever. And then they do it at the sink. It's only on for a couple of minutes. What is happening there? Remember that we talked about the eumelanin and the pheomelanin? So when you lighten your hair, whether you use bleach or it's lightening from the hydrogen peroxide in your hair colored mixture, it's a lot more difficult to get rid of pheomelanin. And pheomelanin has that orangey yellow tonality. So what ends up happening is that you've decolorized your melanin, your eumelanin primarily, and you usually have some pheomelanin left over, unless you bleach additional times in order to go to that total platinum, almost white. And even then, you still might have a little bit of yellow going on. So is this where toners come in? I've heard of toning shampoos, and I know those are blue or purple. So let's think back on like elementary school color wheel. When you look at opposing colors, they neutralize each other. And when you have a yellow, the opposite color to yellow is purple. So when you think of toners, toners can be in several formats. They can be a permanent hair color. Same thing where you, you're adding in those dyes again, but they're adding in blue tonality or purple tonality to permanently tone your hair. And then there's alternate ways to do that that are less permanent. And that is using shampoos and conditioners with blue or purple dyes in them. What are your thoughts on color safe products like shampoo, conditioner? I've even seen, you know, stylers labeled as color safe. Are those really necessary? And what makes them different from your standard products? Anytime you wash your hair, it's going to kind of pull out some of that dye. When a product claims something like it's color safe, that generally means that they've tested it on color treated hair. So I think. Yeah, there's definitely some value in having color safe products. I think what matters more is that, does this feel good with what I'm doing for my hair? When I use this, does it seem like all my red hair dye is going on the drip? So there are so many different types of hair color, different categories and formulas. Where are you seeing the most change and what do you have your eye on for the future of hair color? I feel like I've seen the most innovation in the semi-permanent and temporary area. I think there's so many cool aesthetics, different vehicles to get color onto your hair, different types of creams and, and multifunctional nourishing agents. I love seeing color depositing conditioners and things like that because I, I love dual purpose things. I've got a toddler. I don't like doing too many layers of things. And I think you see a push for personalized hair color. And I also love that because I think, especially with the way our world got turned upside down with the pandemic, I feel like it's awesome if you can say, talk to a stylist virtually, what should I do? I don't know what to do. And they can give you tips on what to do. And you can get personalized hair color through a variety of companies. And I feel like that's something that hasn't been done in the, even the recent past. That's something kind of new. So when it comes to that, have we totally upended and like changed the way we color hair? Not really, but we're always coming up with something new to make it even better. Well, that is a wonderful and proactive note to end on. And we just so appreciate you being here, Dr. Wagner. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Okay. 
Okay, on to the short list. All right, Jenny, given your affinity for hair dye, I think it would make more sense if I ask you first what your favorite hair color maintenance products might be. It's all on me. Okay, I do have blonde hair. As I said before, it's kind of a a blonde, white, gray mix. I use maybe once a week a color depositing shampoo and conditioner. So, you know, the purple shampoos that you've seen to help keep your your blonde bright and not brassy. And this one was actually recommended to me by Brennan Kilbane, who was the senior writer at Allure for many years and had a pretty long platinum period. And he recommended, and I now come to love, the Redken Color Extend Blondage Color Depositing shampoo and conditioner blondage i like that word yeah so i do that once a week um and then in the interim i mean i try to use sulfate free shampoos i'm not sure how much that really protects my color but i figure it can't hurt um and then and occasionally like i always have head and shoulders in my showers i've been feeling a little itchy i'll use some head and shoulders so i kind of cycle through um different shampoos. And then I always, of course, I mean, I think whether your hair is colored or not, conditioner is important. Um, and I usually use a pretty, like a thick mask, even if I only leave it on for like 10 seconds, I usually condition with a mask. Um, and then one of my favorite hair color related products is the Color Wow Root Touch-Up. Ooh, yeah. I use that too, actually, but I use it to fill in my hair to make it look more voluminous. Yes, it is known. A lot of people use it to fill in their parts um, just to make their hair look fuller. Exactly. But it is also great. It's a powder, you know, in a palette with a little brush. And it's great for touching up your roots along your part when you need to buy yourself, you know, a few more days, a couple more weeks um, between coloring your hair. This product has won Best of Beauty at least seven times, I think maybe eight times. And it's actually the the brain behind Color Wow Root Touch-Up is Gail Federici, who is the same person who came up with Frizzies, one of the, the world's most famous silicone serums. Jenny, you just put a beautiful bow on our episodes because silicone was episode number one, and here we are with our last episode of the year. So now that we are all tied up in a beautiful bow, that is it for us for this year. But you can catch up on all of our episodes and be the first to hear about our new ones by clicking subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate it and leave us a review. And subscribe. It helps new listeners find us. You can find additional information and episode references in the show notes. Follow Lore on Instagram at A-L-L-U-R-E. Follow me, J Bayi, on Instagram. That's J B as in Boy, A-I-L-L-Y. And you can follow Diana at Diana Mazone. That is two N's in Diana and two Z's in Mazone. On the Allure and Condé Nast team, producer is Chloe Sabin. Associate producer is Deprina Gadbolo. Director of Global Podcast is Nico Steele, and executive producer is Megan Shibona. The editorial project leads are Soyini Driscoll and Monica Perry. Lead researcher is Maya Kukis. And the theme music is by Asha Ivanovich. And on the Wonder Media Network team, lead producer is Maddie Foley. Supporting producer is Sundas Hassan Noli. Production manager is Emily Rudder. And production assistant is Carmen Borca Carrillo. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan.